The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And always interesting things are happening in technology. The uh, Large Hadron Collider has finally restarted after being down for three years. They're trying to figure out all about the intricacies of the atom and trying to understand something about the universe as they do research at the Large Hadron Collider. I'll talk about that in a bit, a bit later in the show. They have finally calculated, uh, it's a complicated calculation, the physics of the singing saws. You, you know, you've probably heard bands play saws before. I went back, I listened to some singing saws, and it's a complicated calculation. They've completed it, and they hope to do something useful with it. And you know what? We may actually hear a singing saw on the show today. In Estonia has gone all in digital for uh, digital signatures, and their citizens to everything online. They've really streamlined the system, and it looks quite good. This week, we're going to feature Umang Umang Gupta. He is the uh, he was employee number seventeen at Oracle. He wrote the first business plan for Oracle, but he's also the first. Indian American to take a tech company public. He was one of the visionaries out there in Silicon Valley. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Andrew, here are a couple of interesting websites that track the location of shipping vessels. Vesselfinder.com and marinetraffic.com. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener. Well, Bob, I tell you, I looked at both of these sites. These are these sites are really interesting. They track the location of all of the ships globally, where they're going, their velocity, then you know the name of the ship, uh, and you can you can zoom in on it and you see what's going on. Now they all use all both of these sites use AIS data. That's automatic identification system data, which is an automatic tracking system that uses transceivers on ships. AIS information supplements marine radar, which actually continues to be the primary method of collision avoidance for water transport. Information provided by AIS equipment includes a unique identification number, the position, the course, the speed. It can be displayed on a screen or on an electronic chart display on the ship or at port. AIS is intended to assist uh, a vessel's 
watch standing officers and allow maritime authorities to track and monitor the vessel movements. Now, AIS integrates standardized VHF receiver. It's a very high frequency. It's a radio receiver as combined with the positioning systems, such as a global positioning a GPS system, you know, to get their actual locations. Now, vessels fitted with the AIS transceivers can be tracked by AIS base stations located along the coast or when they are out of range from coastal um, radios, they can be tracked with uh, satellites using uh, which have been fitted with 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 AIS technology. Now, the uh, International Maritime Organization International Convention for Safety at Sea requires that AIS be fitted aboard all international ships with that are 300 tons or more and all passenger ships, regardless of size. For a variety of reasons, ships can turn off their AIS transceivers so people can track them. For instance, Russia in particular is turning off its AIS transceivers to circumvent the sanctions. Well, that's, and then that's a huge surprise, them. Doc. That's a huge surprise. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, it really is. Yeah, you, you certainly would would expect that. Um, so we all know about transceivers on air, airplanes, but they but they have them aboard ships. It's pre, it is pretty nice. So those two websites are fun to look at, uh, marinetraffic.com or vesselfinder.com. Bob, that was really a, um, a fun email. I enjoyed I enjoyed learning all about that. We got an email from John in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, yesterday morning I took the cover off my computer to see if the fans were running because it was so quiet. And they, they appear to be running fine. But but when I had the cover off, I dropped a screw into, uh, onto the motherboard and the com computer completely shut down. Now I removed the screw. Then I pressed the power button. It booted right up. It gave me an error that uh, said Windows didn't shut down correctly. It did finish up booting though everything seemed to be working okay i booted it a few more times continue to be working should i be concerned john in fairfax well john a, a drop screw can cause permanent damage if if it shorts something out now the good news is on uh, uh, the top of the motherboard probably uh, um, uh, is coated with some sort of insulating coating and you may not short out anything directly unless you lean up against one of the uh, one of the chip pinout points uh most of the open open connections are on the bottom of it so so you were lucky you landed on a part of the of the motherboard and the screw didn't short out anything so um if you had a problem if you'd shorted out or something it I don't, it wouldn't boot up like it failed to power up or where windows wouldn't wouldn't load but since you're coming up i think you've i think you've dodged a bullet well, Doc, uh, if, if it wasn't a short, though, what, what would make it, it stop? What would make it shut down? Just the co contact? I, I was mean, wondering that. Yeah. I, I don't know what would make it shut down. I don't know what. Yeah. The, what uh, oh, is TuneIn. I just got a note that TuneIn's not available. I don't know what, what that means for uh, the, oh, the, the, the live stream. Oh, okay. So you, you might check that. I'm not really sure what that. Things look uh, good on this end. I don't know. It must be yeah. a problem outside of the station. Okay. So uh, I, I don't know what would have caused it to shut. It may be he just got so uh, nervous he hit a button and shut it down. I, I don't know. I, I, if, it would have, if, if the screw would have made it shut down, that, that might have caused some damage too. 
So I could not figure that one out, actually, about what would make it shut yeah. down. We got an email from Peter in Richmond. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've got a Toshiba Dynabook satellite that I bought three months ago. When I turn the laptop, I can smell a faint burning smell and see whiffs of smoke coming out of it, coming out of the keyboard. Well, that doesn't sound good. No, no, that sounds dangerous right there. Yeah, the thing boots up normally, works fine. Nothing seems to be getting hot, uh, at least to the touch. My yeah. question is, do you think I might be able to fix this, or should I send it back? Yeah. Uh, I know yeah. if I send it in to be repaired, it'll take uh, quite yeah, a while to get it Yeah, back. that's true. He'll lose possession of it for a while. So, yeah. Yeah, could... well, it's definitely a hardware issue. There's probably some, yeah. some resistor in there beginning to, yeah. uh, to but, fail. Yeah, that's, that's the ultimate analog problem in a digital world is the thing is starting to smoke. <laughs> when it starts to smoke, it's yeah. probably the power supply. You yeah. know, that's usually what, it's probably a capacitor beginning to fail in the power supply. Now, I don't think it's a good idea to kind of fix it. First of all, uh, you got it, uh, you just bought it three months ago. It's under warranty. If you open up the laptop, you void the warranty. So even if you, so if you don't fix it, you'll, you'll, have, to, <laughs> you'll have to pay for it. So basically what you want to do is just call Toshiba Tech Support and send it back. They'll probably replace it. Sounds they'll probably just replace it and uh, and you'll be good to go, but don't open it up. We got an email from Alex in Reston. Dear Tech Talk, I got a two-year-old Lavona la uh, Lenovo laptop. You know, L Lenovo is the company that bought the IBM PC business from them. They're they're in China. And they were manufacturing all the IBM PCs when, when they were making them. And then finally, IBM just decided to divest itself of the business, and they sold it to Livono. Uh, it, now, my, this Livono, uh, Lenovo a laptop was working fine until yesterday, and then the, the Wi-Fi won't work. I thought it might be a setting, but the Wi-Fi adapter is not even showing up in the device manager. Uh, I tried rebooting. I've got a dual-volt system. I tried rebooting in Linux, Linux Mint. And um, the Wi-Fi adapter uh, didn't show up there either. So uh, it must be a hardware problem. Can this be cheaply fixed? I, I don't know how to replace the Wi-Fi hardware on the laptop. Well, um, Alex, it's definitely a hardware problem, but it's really not worth fixing it. It'll cost you more than it's worth. You should just get a USB wireless adapter, Wi-Fi wireless adapter, and plug it in and forget about it. A good option is 9 plus wireless USB Wi-Fi adapter for PC, 9 plus uh, wireless USB Wi-Fi adapter for $23.97. And uh, I've got one like that. It's got actually has a dual antenna, so you actually get some beam forming with it. It works really well, $23, and then you're, you're good to go. How big is that thing if it has a couple of antennas? The, the two antennas are about uh, about uh, two inches apart, and, and each of the antennas is about four inches long. So it's sticking out of the side of your uh, computer? So it just, it just sticks out of the side. Okay, yeah. And the, the two antennas give you beam forming. That's, that's why that's side, sort of nice. Uh, if you just have a, I've got another one, which is a single antenna, which is, uh, which is about uh, eight inches long. And that, that doesn't have beam forming, but it's got a narrower beam because it's got nine inches. So whenever I'm trying to get a long distance, I try to get a bigger antenna on my on my Wi-Fi adapter. And plus this this Wi-Fi adapter uh, from 9 Plus, it's both 2.4 gigahertz as well as 5 gigahertz. 
So you've got both bands there. Whereas like my, my laptop by itself is only 2.4 gigahertz. I don't have the five gigahertz band on my laptop. So having the Wi-Fi adapter is uh, pretty good. I was using all these different Wi-Fi adapters, Andrew, and I was trying to get a better connection to Wi-Fi for the radio show so we wouldn't have any buffering. Yes. And, and in the end, I just dumped all my adapters and went with an Ethernet cable. Yes. We've got a 50-foot 50, 50 Ethernet. Nothing so not beats hardwiring. Nothing beats hardwiring, even today. N nothing beats hardwiring. Hard You're exactly right. We got an email from uh, Brian in uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I bought a refurbished Dell laptop. Everything was working fine until I clicked the link and read an article on my favorite website. Then I noticed four vertical lines on the screen. I mean, they're even on the laptop when it's booting up with the black screen. I don't know what's causing these lines. Could I have gotten a virus from that website or what was that? Well, uh, Brian, those vertical lines, they're not nothing to do with the virus. It basically, it's, um, it's just a coincidence that it showed up then. The vertical lines is a common symptom of hardware problems with your laptop screen. Either the screen itself is going bad or more likely the cable that runs from the laptop mainboard to the screen either has a break in it or a loose connector. Now, since you just bought it uh, as a refurbished machine from Dell, the nice thing about getting the refurbished machines from the manufacturer themselves is that you've got a one-year warranty. So you just contact Dell tech support and they should be able to either fix it or replace it. So I would just call them pronto and make certain you call them right away because if that warranty runs out, you're going to have uh, to pay for it. Uh, so you want to take care of that right away. We got an email from Doug in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, I got two computers in the office at work. They're both connected to a single printer with a USB cable. Now, I simply swap the cable back and forth when I print from one computer or the other. But is there a way to do it automatically so I don't have to keep swapping cables, Doug and Kilmarnock? Well, constantly swapping cables uh, really is a drag. I, I, I've done that before. Uh, back in the day when I was using USB printers, now I've got all Wi-Fi printers, so I don't have cables anymore. You can get a USB a printer auto-sharing switch which will make it really easy to do the switch. You can either get a two port switch for two printers or four port for two computers and one printer or a four port switch if you got four computers. And you can either, uh, the switch can either be manual where you, where you push a button and you can, you can activate one computer connection or the other. But the automatic switches are so much better. It just basically senses when a computer is trying to send something through the USB port and it makes the connection. And then if another printer, if the other printer wants to print something, it will sense it and make the connection there. So you never have to touch the switch. Um, you can buy a two port automatic switch for about 20 bucks. So just go on to Amazon and look for USB printer auto sharing switch and um, and just get and just buy one for with it's got a lot of good reviews. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We most certainly will. And next we meet the man who wrote the first business plan for Oracle. Profiles in IT coming up next on Tech Talk Radio. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Uman Gupta. And I'm back after having my microphone on mute for a while. Oh, that was a great idea, Doc. Yeah. That's right. You know, you know, never put your microphone on mute when you go on break in case you were wondering what was happening to me. Yeah. Well, I felt maybe you felt like cursing or something. You just needed to get it out of your system. I was trusting That's you to do the right thing, Doc. So Uman Gupta was an Indian-American entrepreneur. He's credited with writing the first business plan for Oracle and being the first Indian to take a tech company public. He was one of the visionaries out in Silicon Valley. Uman Gupta was born in 1949 in India. That was right after the Indian, uh, Indian uh, independence uh, from England, which was, I think, 1946. He was raised, or 1947, he was raised in the newly independent India by his parents, who were basically uh, followers of Mahatma Gandhi, and they were basically socialists or leftists. And they inculcated him with a strong desire to serve the country. As a teenager, though, uh, he... He wasn't really that interested in politics. He was fascinated with technology and was admitted into the Indian Institute of Technology at Kanpur. He learned computer programming on one of India's first early mainframe computers and fell in love with all things digital. In 1971, he received the Bachelor of Technology in Chemical Engineering from IIT, Indian Institute of Technology. 
Then during the Vietnam War, he immigrated to the United States to further his education. In 1972, he earned an MBA from Kent State University in Ohio. After graduating, he joined IBM as a computer sales representative. He worked there for actually seven years. And then he met his wife, uh, Ruth, and they decided just to travel out to Silicon Valley where all the action was. Uh, he went out there, he met people out there. He actually met Larry Ellison out there in California. And one thing led to another, and Larry Ellison offered him a job. And he joined Oracle as their 17th employee. Now, he's credited with writing the company's first business plan in 1981. He was eventually promoted to VP of the company's microcomputer products division. And he was, uh, you know, on his way to become a very successful executive at Oracle. But if you remember, this was right back in the early 80s when, I mean, the, the IBM PC was released around 85. And uh, local area networks had just been, you know, created um, there at Palo Alto Research Center. Ethernet was just coming out. And so local area networks had ju were just being set up in businesses to hook together all the PCs. So the PCs could operate as a networked ensemble instead of individual units. You know, before the PC was just, you say, as a word processor, standalone word processor, maybe spreadsheets. But if you could hook them all together, you could start doing things. So he decided that he could take his knowledge of databases and apply it to networked computers. So he quit Oracle and he started Gupta Technologies. And they built SQL database, structured query language databases uh, for uh, a database server for PC LAN. So the idea was instead of having uh, a mainframe or a microprocessor, a microcomputer, you just take one of the computers on the uh, network, you treat it as a server, you load on the server, so you, you load the database software on the server, and all the other computers would be clients to that server, and they could access the database. It was called client-server technology. Now, he put all kinds of tools on it. He put tools for uh, developmental tools for Microsoft Windows. He put on tools for uh, SQL connectivity software. He was basically creating a whole environment for, for making database applications in the client-server environment. Actually, he was one of the luminaries that helped usher into what became known as the client-server revolution. I mean, it was a huge sea change. And, he's, and he was doubling in size every year. Boom, boom, was very successful because client-server were the hot ticket. Uh, he decided to take the, uh, and he did it with very, by the way, he, he did that expansion with very little venture capital funding because they were, they were just making money. Everybody wanted to get a client-server system set up. He took the, the company public in January of 1993. But client-servers were so popular, it became a crowded market. Pretty soon, Oracle operated their own PC version of the Oracle database, a client-server modification. Microsoft came out with their SQL server products. So 
everybody was entering the client server field and it was becoming a difficult market to expand in. Now, Larry Ellison came to uh, Umang Gupta and said, look, I'll buy your company. I'd, I'd like to enter in the client server business. You've got a good system going. I'll buy your company. And Gupta said, no, this is my baby. This is Gupta Technologies. I'm going to keep on growing this thing. And he refused the, uh, refused the offer. Uh, but uh, it turned to be quite a different different, different marketplace. Because what had happened in the eight years since he'd started the business, the internet awoke. And all of a sudden, everyone was on the internet. And so now the hot new ticket was not client server, it was inter-based, internet-based servers. And he missed the whole, he missed the whole, uh, the, the whole transition to the internet. And basically the technology revolution that he helped start in client server <laughs> was ending and it was all going to internet technology. So he ended up, uh, you know, having to downsize and then he decided just to sell the company. And so he changed the name from Gupta Technologies because they didn't want to identify with him personally. And he sold it. He sold the whole company out in 1997. And then he went into a period of deep introspection. He says, how, what, what did I do wrong? I thought everything was right. He said, how can I make a, how can I make a, a company that, that's going to last instead of one that's just going to be transient? And how did I miss the Internet? Uh, so then he realized that what he had, was focused on was just so much on his client-server stuff that he wasn't really looking at the whole landscape of where technology was going, and he missed the whole the whole internet coming up. So he started making, he, but he did make a, I mean, when he left Oracle, he, he did make money. And he, when he sold his company, he did make some money, but not that much money. But he had enough to be an angel investor. So he started making small angel investments in new tech companies. Now, one of those angel investments was Keynote Systems. It was located in San Mateo, which was not far from where he lived. Now, they built some interesting technology which measured the performance of Internet websites. So this thing was specifically targeted for the Internet. And companies could measure the effectiveness of their, of their website. They could look at response time and, you know, how quickly pages were loading. They get all kinds of metrics from their website. Now, his company software, this Keystone, really was not differentiated from any of the others, but, but he but he learned a lesson in his previous experience. It's not always about having the hottest technology, it's about having the best business plan. So he took their technology, which was quite good, and he changed the business model. Instead of selling the software to the companies that wanted to track their websites, he created an on-demand service model where people, where the companies would just pay a subscription fee and they would get essentially software as a service. The software was on the internet, basically. We now call it cloud computing. It was on the internet and he would just sell software as a service. And this turned out to be an extremely popular business model. And, and he invented the first software as a service company. Keynote became known as the JD Powers of the internet. They had more than 2,000 corporate customers Gupta oversaw the company when it went public in 1999. He decided to take it public. Now, <clears throat> they went public, they raised some money, then he had a second offering where he raised an additional dollars 
and he ended up with a uh, with a war chest of three hundred and fifty million dollars after those two public offerings. <clears throat> the second one was in February of two thousand. Now, if you remember, we had the dot com crash in two thousand. Three months later, the bottom fell out of the market, <clears throat> dot com market. They lost half their customers. They just went belly up. The crash took a heavy toll on Keystone, but he had a war chest already in place, $350 million. So he just decided, I'm going to rebuild the company. So they started introducing new products for corporate internet clients. They extended the mobile monitoring and testing space, and they just kept building and building. Actually, for 12 years, he, he rebuilt the company. By 2013, Keystone had more than 4,000 customers. That was double their 2,000 customers. And revenues had tripled to more than $125 million with a profit margin of 20%. It was healthy, a healthy company. He had weathered the dot-com crash storm. And that's when he decided, time to sell. I'm not going to make the same mistake I did when Larry Ellison offered to buy. So he sold out to a private equity company, Thoma. Thoma Bravo in August of 2013, um, and he made some good money there. You gotta wonder. You gotta wonder, Doc, because he, he he didn't name it Gupta Systems anymore, so maybe it was just easier to part with Kino. It was just easier to part because he didn't he didn't <laughs> yeah. view it as his baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just uh, he, he he didn't get overly attached. He no. said when it's when it's time to sell, you want to sell. Yeah. So he he ended up uh, becoming an angel investor again. He was an advisor and investor in William Draper's project to create a venture capital fund for India in 1994. He wanted to go back and give back to India. And then he started dedicating his efforts to education for young children. He founded Seashells Education. One of the main initiatives at Seashells was the Reading Racer, which was uh, an application that would help children learn to read. And, you know, and, uh, and, and he was really focused on that. He also began investing in educational technology, such as front row education. He, he just, his whole life after he got out of the tech business was really devoted to education. And uh, he and his wife were really big advocates of that. Sadly, he died April 19th, 2022, this year of bladder cancer. He had a net worth of around $100 million when he died. His wife, Ruth Gupta, was an immigrant from Great Britain, and she was a partner with him. She's the one that encouraged him to go to Silicon Valley in the first place. They had two children, a daughter and the son. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Umang Gupta, who was an Indian-American entrepreneur and the first Indian to take a tech company public. Well, have you ever heard it said that technology is a ticket to the game, but not the game itself? We'll consider that proposition next uh, and think about the life of Umang Gupta. Pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. We join Doc for his observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. 
Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's look at the lessons learned by Uman Gupta out there in Silicon Valley. Now his experience at Gupta Technologies taught him first and foremost an important lesson of his Silicon Valley career. That technology is the ticket to the game, but not the game itself. So look at what happened. Many Silicon Valley visionaries build a hot new business based on a revolutionary technology. But their companies don't survive when the technology or market trends change. Like with Gupta Technologies, client-server was a hot new technology, but then the ground shifted and it became driven by internet technology. To build a business at last, an entrepreneur, typically the techie type, has to realize that innovation comes not from inventing new products, not from just inventing new products, but also from introducing new business models and new ways to market those products. Now, in Silicon Valley, there's also another saying that he learned quite well. If the wind blows hard enough, even turkeys can fly. <clears throat> now, he learned this lesson with, uh, with Keynote. If you remember, Keynote had real customers, uh, <clears throat> and they had a viable business model, but he did not fool himself into thinking that he knew exactly how the future would unfold. So when the chance presented itself for him to go public and raise money, he jumped on it. <clears throat> and he went public in August of 1999. So he just didn't want to have another turkey that was flying because there was a good wind. And he was able <clears throat> to raise $350 million dollars. In, the, in those two public offerings, as I said earlier. And that war chest allowed him to survive when the entire market shifted and we had the huge dot-com crash. He, was, he managed to survive that quite well. Now, the third lesson that he learned uh, quite well, uh, it started when he refused to sell his company, Gupta Technologies, to Larry Ellison. Uh, now, with the benefit of hindsight, he says he should have sold the company then. So the important, the third important lesson that, um, that Gupta learned out in Silicon Valley is know when to hold them 
and know when to fold them. Yeah, or in, in other words, in this case specifically, I mean, there's a time when you take, because you start private usually, and there's a time when you take it public and make as much, get, get as much cash as you can. And there's also a time to just sell it. So there are two different parts of the equation, but the timing is important on both of those events. It's all, it, it is all timing. So see, so after the dot-com crash, after he after raised all that money, he had to make a choice. Am I going to sell Keystone because now the market just dropped out? Or am I going to hold Keystone? Because he had anticipated uh, the need for cash, he had a war chest. So he could hold on to Keystone for 12 years while he rebuilt it. And then as soon as it became viable and was making money, he sold it. So he, he played Keystone exactly right. Uh, and he, he learned from his mistakes at Gupta Technology. So those are the three lessons that, uh, that Gupta learned. And, and he was actually many executives from India came to the US and he was one he was a mentor he helped many many indian indian uh, immigrants uh, you know position themselves in silicon valley and move to executive positions he was a real thought leader out there in silicon valley so there you go everything you want to know about the lessons learned by uman gupta in silicon valley and part of that is too he never he didn't i guess he didn't the legacy his parents left him this idea that he should help his country and you know he didn't lose sight of that either i mean he he got caught up in technology moved to the us but then he did uh, you know the thing with the uh, 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 the foundation that helped uh, children in in uh, in India, and uh, and and then he also helped fellow Indian immigrants in the U.S. So he was always thinking about his homeland and his people and how to. And then he also set up a venture fund in India. Right, so a venture fund. That's yeah. That's right. In India. That's what I meant to think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so that's you know he was always thinking. So that part um, that his parents that lesson his parents were trying to inculcate in him it took and it it took root and and he did it, it throughout his life. It certainly did. The, the other thing is interesting. When he was here, see, we used to welcome uh, um, um, students on student visas that would get their degrees here and then want to go on to get, uh, say, um, an H-1B visa and then become a citizen. And we'd help them with that transition. And back then, it was very, it was very, uh, the U.S. was very welcoming to to students from other countries that completed advanced degrees here. And now, recently, that's that's shifted, and it's it's harder for students who get advanced degrees here to stay in the U.S. because they've, they've clamped down on the amount of, uh, of H-1B visas we can have. And so what's happening, students are coming here, and then they're, say, going back to India or going back to China, and they're just starting their companies back there. So now even... India's got what is equivalent to an Indian Silicon Valley because we've sent all these folks back. So I think our immigration policy now is not necessarily the right immigration policy to create that ecosystem for startups that we used to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So should we take a break? Yeah, let's, let's do go. that. Take a break. And then uh, uh, what will we be talking about, Doc? What's the next thing the we're going to? Large Hadron Collider. Oh. The search for dark matter. Who, who yes. knew that? I, I didn't even know the collider and dark matter had anything to do with each other, but we'll learn about that in a moment on Tech Talk Radio. 
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. The Large Hadron Collider has restarted after a three-year break. Now, the upgrades will allow it to accelerate the protons even faster speeds to hoping, hoping to make even greater discoveries. So a proton is actually a hadron particle. So the Large Hadron Collider is really a proton collider, and they'll take a beam of protons circulating in one direction, say clockwise, they'll create another beam of protons going counterclockwise, and then they'll bring those two beams together so that the protein protons from the two beams will collide. And when they collide, if they're going fast enough, they will create a whole blizzard of new particles. And then they analyze those particles to see what they've discovered. So the big discovery back in 2012, uh, in physics, uh, Whenever you have a, a force field, you can represent that as a particle. And there was a force field that was giving, uh, ob- giving particles in the atom mass, and they, they really had never detected the particle which was responsible for that force field. And the standard model was predicting that protons and neutrons would have zero mass, unless there would be this additional force field that would, that would, that would basically slow them down as they, as they move. And uh, Higgs uh, 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 predicted that the Higgs boson would actually uh, would actually create exactly the force that would represent the you know the the mass of the proton, the electrons, and the neutrons. So he proposed the Higgs boson, but they'd never seen one. And finally, in 2012, they detected the presence of the Higgs boson. It was a huge, huge event. The, uh, by the way, the ring where these circulates, a 17-mile-long ring that's underground um, over there at CERN, you know, it's halfway between, uh, you know, it's in France and, 
it's uh, it's it's in France and uh, one other country. I can't remember that with the other country. Switzerland, and, uh, Switzerland, yeah. Switzerland, France, and Switzerland. Yeah, thank you. And so, and it's an it's an international. Um, this is an international resource. Countries from around the world contribute to it. Now, <clears throat> they're trying to actually look at all the particles that are in the standard model for an atom. And, um, and they keep, uh, you know, and the more they smash to together protons, the more particles they can discover. And they're hoping that they can discover um, that they can discover some anomalies in the standard model of the atom, and that those discoveries will ultimately lead to a prediction that will that would predict the presence of dark energy. See, this dark energy is really kind of a problem for the cosmologists. The, the universe is expanding at a certain rate. And uh, based on that expansion rate, uh, they have detected the presence of additional mass in the universe that alters the expansion rate. And based on that prediction, uh, scientists think that more than half the mass of the universe we can't even see, and we don't know where it is, and we don't know where it came from. And they call that dark matter, and they're hoping that the latest uh, enhancements to the Large Hadron Collider are going to give them some hints of dark matter. Now, there was another uh, physicist that had another model for dark matter. He said, well, actually, there would be another universe with time running backwards, so when the Big Bang occurred, we're in one universe with time running forwards. At the same time, there would be another universe with time running backwards. And that backwards-running universe would represent dark matter that we can't see. So actually, physicists are just trying to figure this out. It's like a, it's like a mystery, and hopefully they're going to come up with the, the, uh, where dark matter came from. Einstein, in order to adjust all of his relativistic equations, just threw a, an extra constant there, a fudge factor. He said, okay, let's just add that in. And that accounted for the dark matter, but it didn't explain why the dark matter was there. So hopefully we'll get something, some progress in that way in the next year or so when we get more results with the Large Hadron Collider. But Doc, if time is going backwards in this uh, other universe, does that mean everything is contracting as well? In other I words, don't know. It's hard to imagine time going backwards. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I I can't. I, I, you know, you, you don't know whether you're going, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you don't know time's going backwards. Well, I'm throwing I out all know. my watches. There's no point in wearing a watch anymore <laughs> if we can't rely on time to go forward no, only. They're, 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 I mean, the whole idea of the Big Bang was that out of nothing, the entire universe just popped into existence. You know, so the idea of, that it had to displace quantum, something out of, out of else, quantum maybe. Quantum fluctuation yeah. just psh, popped into existence. And so it, it sort of does make sense that you might have two counterbalancing uh, masses that, 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 that would be there. But, but they're going right back to the, to the beginning of time, trying to understand where it all came from. It's yeah. really interesting physics. And, uh, and they're trying to actually bring together... The, the fields of general relativity that explain the, the movement of huge things with quantum mechanics, which is the, the, the physics of very small things. And they're, and they're basically trying to get a unified theory that will 
bring both of them together. That's what they're, that's the grand hope that physicists can unify it all. Now let's talk about the physics of the singing saw. Mm-hmm. We've all heard that eerie sound of a singing saw. It's been part of a folk music tradition around the globe from China to La- Appalachia since the proliferation of cheap, flexible steel in the early 19th century. Now, it's made by bending a, a metal handsaw and bowing it like a cello. You, you get basically the bow like a, a cello bow. And it, it reached its heyday back in vaudeville in the early 20th century, and it's seen a resurgence thanks to social media now. Do we have any examples of... Uh, oh, yeah, let's see. Uh, let's see what this might sound like here. There's a piano there, of course, so don't get confused. Yeah. But the other thing that doesn't sound like a piano is the singing saw. Wow. Yeah, and that's being played with a violin bow, I believe. And then uh, the artist Natalia Perus, she's, uh, bent, you bend it, as you bend it more, it makes a higher pitch sound, and then you straighten it out, it's lower pitch, and then you can wobble the handle and make it, give it the vibrato that you're hearing. Yeah. There, that, that, it's hard to imagine that's, that that is yeah, just yeah. a saw. <laughs> yeah, and it, she's sometimes she's a little off key, but I mean, because it's an approximate science, but it's remarkable how she knows to anticipate what note is needed and is bending it. All she's doing is bending it a certain amount to hit the right note. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it turns out the, the, the mathematical physics of the singing saw is it's pretty complicated because you've got this sort of this object being bent. It's got different tension at different points. It's, it's a very complicated calculation. But it may hold the key to designing high-quality reg- resonators for a range of applications. So in a new paper, a team of researchers from Harvard used the singing saw to demonstrate how the geometry of a curved sheet, like curved metal, could be tuned to create high-quality, long-lasting oscillations for applications in sensing, in nanoelectronics, and photonics, and more. So th- they actually are going to apply the physics of the singing saw to some really interesting devices. But but what exactly can you do with that? I mean, like what what you know what? Or do you have any examples of a what kind of application? There, you know, in practical terms, what what, what sort of thing is? Needs a certain uh, uh, frequency of of. It would be like a certain frequency. So like so all what, all kind like like all kinds of electronics need some sort of standard frequency that they've yeah. an oscillator that's that's absolutely held constant. So uh, nano electronics, you 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 might want to have a constant frequency. So they're using that theory to try to create an oscillator that's extremely stable. Uh huh. And won't and won't change uh, won't change frequency over time, and you need that for, you know, for for sensing applications. If you, you know, a lot of the a lot of like a lot of the sensors have like resonators in them, and the resonators resonate with the incoming signal to amplify it through resonance, mm-hmm. and and so you would use it for that. A lot of nanoelectronics. This is very very tiny electronics. Um, needs needs resonance so they're they're trying to come up with new ways to get ultra stable resonating devices now we've heard of using quartz crystals 
for stable resonators. They want to get something better than a quartz crystal. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. So Estonia has leapfrogged the United States and embraces digital citizenship. I mean, we're, we're still in the U.S., we're still trying to debate whether online voting is viable. We're, we're trying to actually get a national ID card, and there's, res, there's resistance to that, to getting a national ID card that's used for everything. They've even got national ID cards in, uh, in India that, that are tied to biometrics. So, but Estonia has embraced this, so they have national ID cards tied to... Uh, biometrics, so you've got good ID, voter ID, and residents of Estonia have been able to vote online since 2005, 15, 16, 17 years ago. I mean, I mean, they can still line up in the rain and check a box in person if they desire, but almost half the population chooses to vote online, and they've got no problem with voter fraud because they have a very secure voter ID system with that will ensure that one vote per person. Now, thanks to the online system built around every residence having a digital identification, uh, oh, they've also got a single logon for every government service. They, they got a standard logon number. They can log in to all the government services and they can have a, a legally binding digital signature when they log into those services. So they've got a, a way to transmit their digital signature. So they don't have to go to DMV. They can apply for a driver's license from home. They don't, they don't have to um, register the birth of a child by going to, uh, down to government agency. They can do it from home. The benefits of Estonia's digital public services are many. First of all, the, this, the country saves a lot of money. They estimate it saves about 2% of its GDP by just uh, not, not have to have all of these offices open. It enables the country to afford an army. It, uh, you know, and it's a NATO state which borders Russia. It has a population of 1.3 million. It gained its independence from the former Soviet Union in 1991. It's got a large Russian minority. Estonian residents save time and energy on the dreaded admin tasks using digital services. I mean, this is what the U.S. needs. Now, now this is kind of a case where they were able to leapfrog us because we had all of our offices in place with the forms and everything else, and they didn't have anything, so they just went straight to pure digital, and it works really well. I'm kind of hoping that uh, that we would have something like that. But I, I feel like maybe they're missing out on the great rituals of life, like standing in line at the DMV to get your first license. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, standing in the rain, yeah, for to vote. I mean, I don't know. I I like going down to the. I like going down and voting in person. I I kind of enjoy that uh, the experience. You know, I, well, I, actually, I do enjoy standing in line because you talk to people in line. Yeah. You know, so it, it it does give you a chance to to meet people, and you know, you talk to them in line. What, but but I'll tell you what, uh, Andrew, when I'm in line voting and I talk to people, I talk to everything ex about everything except politics. Oh yeah, no, no, you don't <laughs> want to start that right then. <laughs> no, I, no I, I never talk politics in the voting line, but I talk about everything else, yeah. and uh, and they're really, uh, really, it's uh, some. I get some of the best um, some of the best conversations come out of these uh, these these discussions. 
You know, um, Linux developers um, uh, patch their holes faster. Security reaches faster. It's really interesting. Google's Project Zero looked at bugs that were reported on different platforms. They looked, you know, security bugs would be discovered and they'd be reported. And, and, and Google's Project Zero reported a lot of them. So they looked at all the bugs reported between, between January of 2019 and December of 2021. And they found that open source programmers fixed Linux in an average of only 25 days. So if there would be a security vulnerability in Linux, in 25 days it would be patched. In addition, Linux developers have been improving their speed at patching security holes from uh, 32 days in 2019 to just 15 days in 2021. Now, the competition didn't do as well. Okay, let's say Apple, you know, that's paid software. It took them 69 days to patch their vulnerabilities. It took Google 44 days to patch theirs. It took Mozilla, Firefox, 46 days to patch theirs. And coming in at the bottom was Microsoft. It took them 83 days to patch their areas. Oh no, the bottom was Oracle. Oracle, it took 109 days to patch their security breaches. Is this possible, Doctor? I mean, there's so many zero day threats nowadays. Um, do you think these numbers are getting shorter anyway? Um, because I, it just seems impossible that for, for these huge technology companies, if, they, if they're not keeping up, if it takes them two to three months, uh, th th there must be there must be a hierarchy of threats, right? That they address immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what what was happening was the uh, the security researchers weren't making them public for uh, for ninety days. You know, they were saying, okay, they would tell the company they found this security vulnerability, but they wouldn't make it public for ninety days. Oh. And uh, Google Project Zero. Um, came up with, uh, they started reducing the notification time because they said 90 days is too long. So then they cut back where they made it public in 60 days. And they're trying to force these companies to respond quicker. But these big bureaucracies, I, I, you know, I guess if you got really complicated software that has to be supported on multiple pieces of hardware, it takes a while to make a patch because you've got to do so much validation and testing. They also looked at other open source ones are about 44 days. Listen, I'm telling you, we just love your emails. And you can email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd also like you to check out the Stratford University programs on www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in nursing, health sciences, accounting, business, software engineering, networking. Um, cybersecurity, hospitality, uh, culinary arts, and tell that you've heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.